Acts chapter 6 and 7. We'll get there in a moment. We are studying the advance of the kingdom, this great theme of the book of Acts that shows us by the power of the Holy Spirit, we give our witness, our testimony to the life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and, and it works. It just keeps spreading. It's an exciting book. The Holy Spirit's power in daily living, even miraculous displays of that power in these early chapters. There's this hope of lives being transformed. The church is growing and spreading around the world. With a few bumps along the way, we would have to look at these early chapters and say, this is a pretty good story. Being a witness to the work of Jesus Christ is a good thing. Sign me up. Until our story today begins to unfold that our witness for Jesus Christ can at times be costly. I want us to consider a costly witness as we study the life of Stephen this morning. And I say costly based on this word in the Greek language of the New Testament, martyr. The word martyr means something in our minds, but I want us to think first of the text where the word martyr means witness. It's a witness, like in the court of law. A witness is called. That's what happened in Acts chapter 6. They had to find some false witnesses to give a testimony. Those witnesses in the language of the Greek text are martyrs. Not the way you're thinking, not yet. They're just witnesses. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be my martyrs, witnesses. So the word just simply means to testify to what you've seen, to something you know. But after our story of Stephen, the word, the word begins to evolve. Its definition morphs into not just someone who speaks to what they know, but rather someone who suffers and even dies for speaking what they know. This adds a new and weighty, even costly dimension to our calling as witnesses. In our common way of thinking of this witness that is our responsibility in our study of Acts, we're thinking of this witness in, in, in two actions, the showing of the gospel transformation in our lives and the telling of the, of the actual details of that transformation that is brought about by Jesus and his Holy Spirit. So the showing and the telling, we see them both in the life of Stephen. If you look back to verse 3 in chapter 6, Stephen is one of these men who were characterized as men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Stephen was showing gospel transformation in his life. The text that Joshua read earlier concluded with this council of antagonists looking at Stephen and yet seeing one there. And the text says, gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. There was this pervasive confidence and joy and peace about him. He was showing that the gospel is good news. But clearly he was telling it. Verse 10, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And then all of chapter 7 begins by, and Stephen said. It's the showing and the telling that shapes your witness this week. Yes, your good works may bring glory to your Father in heaven this week. And you may not have an opportunity to say anything about it. Somebody noticed from afar. But there may be those conversations that we must engage in because 
The witness is incomplete in demonstration only. The witness must also be spoken. And when we combine now this witness of showing and telling the gospel with the reality of this story, that some people won't receive it, some people won't like it, some will hate it, and some will seek to eliminate it. Then we understand the theme of our study this morning. We must show and tell the truth of the gospel even when consequences loom large. We must show and tell, that's our witness, to what? The gospel of Jesus Christ, even when there may be consequences. So let me dive into the first point. I want to cover that since it's based on the text that Joshua read earlier. And then we'll consider the rest of the story and the rest of the sermon. But first, I want us to think on the character of our costly witness. The character of our costly witness. So much is made of Stephen's death as the first martyr, and rightly so. However, we must not overlook the character that leads Stephen to show and tell the gospel even when consequences loom large. The text is helpful to us in giving us these details of Stephen's person, how the gospel was shaping him. By looking at that, we understand why this guy was able to stand up and speak as he does in chapter 7. And what do we know of this follower of Jesus named Stephen? What we know comes to us in an unusual way use of one key word, and that word is full, full. Look back to verse 3. Remember, Stephen is among these men who are of good repute, a good witness, and were full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. Certainly could have said he was spiritual and wise, And yet, by giving us the fullness word, it shows us that those virtues that we are right to use, it's good for us to speak of wisdom. But in our minds at times, it's helpful to remember, where does that wisdom come from? It comes from a well. It comes from a source. And that's not us. That's the Spirit of God. And so this word full is used to describe Stephen. First, he's full of the Spirit, as we should be. Be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians tells us. Galatians adds, walk in the Spirit. Or even more picturesquely, keep in step with the Spirit. He's full of the Spirit. He's also full of wisdom. Proverbs tells us to search for it like it's a treasure. James, in the midst of trials, tells us to call out for it in our desperate need. And all of the scriptures call us to exercise wisdom in our daily living. Stephen is full of the Spirit. He's full of wisdom. Look at verse 5. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith. We see that word again. There's this fullness. He's full of this confidence in the truth that he knows about Jesus. He's confident in what God has spoken in his promise. He's confident of God's commission on his life to be a witness. He's full of faith. But our story goes on, verse 8, and Stephen, full of grace and full of power. He's full of grace. He understands God's grace demonstrated to him, and he understands he should reflect that grace to others. And so his witness is winsome. Clearly bold, we'll get to that, but winsome, full of grace. Paul would admonish the church this way in Colossians. Making it clear in the early chapters, we speak of Jesus in his fullness. But our speech can be seasoned with salt, with grace. Is your witness winsome? 
People may not like where you stand on the issues of our day because you stand where the Bible speaks, but they, they, there should be something in them that kind of enjoys you as a person. That would be the demonstration of God's grace in your life. Take a stand in your workplace and in your community with your neighbors. But if you're going to stand against the ideologies of your neighbors, do it while you're serving them a nice grilled steak from your back deck. Engage with them winsomely. And they might hate your message as they did Stephen's, but they're looking at this guy thinking he's got the face of an angel, much like your pastor does. <laughs> just seeing if you're awake. It's kind of gloomy out there. I just, just a check. You should be winsome. We know that, but at times I think we get a little insecure and thus defensive about spiritual things, and, and we tend to lash out maybe even on behalf of God, but he, he doesn't need us to lash out. He needs us to speak the truth in love. Stephen was full of grace and full of power. God's power is working through him, even miraculously, we're told. Moving from even just the realm of picking up some service needs to really carrying some weight of the apostles in his message and in the demonstration of miraculous power being identified with this life-transforming message they're declaring about Jesus. You might say, wow, what a guy. But I'm not like that. Let me clarify. This was God's work in Stephen. This is God's work of sanctifying all of his people, all of his sons and daughters, we studied this in the Sunday school hour, are being transformed into the image of his son. God is so pleased and so delights in Jesus Christ, his son, that he's going to make all of us look just like him. This is God's work. So think instead of, wow, what a guy, think, wow. What a God who can make me like that. Lest you leave here thinking, oh, I hope those people that are like Stephen are strong witnesses this week. No, that, that's, that's not how this works. When we look at Stephen, who seems to be this fantastic witness, we see, no, he's just full of God's work in his life, full of God's spirit, demonstrating the fullness of God's character. In other words, you and I can do this. And Jesus wants us to know that. Luke remembered when Jesus spoke during his earthly ministry of the help that God would give, the strength that God would work in us when he calls us to be witnesses. So when we read in our text in verse 10, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. Luke borrowed from his own writing in Luke chapter 21 when he said there, speaking Jesus' words, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Luke uses almost the same language of Jesus that he recorded in his gospel account. And he says, see, he keeps his promise. He said he would make you the witness you need to be. So will you let his spirit fill you? Full of the spirit, full of wisdom, full of faith grace and power. It seems as though the witness will spill right out of us. If your witness seems feeble, 
then ask yourself if your soul is full. Because fullness seems to lead to this spilling out in our witness. This is the character of a costly witness. It begins in the heart and it extends to the witness. We tend to look on the outside and just say, how is my witness? Well, it was okay this week or I was a little afraid this week and I I spoke to someone that... No, the reality is when our witness isn't what it should be, it's a reflection of a heart that is not what it should be. We need the fullness of the Spirit of God. We need to keep in step with that Spirit and allow that faith and grace and power to to so work in our lives that we realize we are being witnesses and it wasn't an exercise in making myself do this or say that in certain scenarios. It It was just coming out. The character of our costly witness. This week, the words just kind of fit, and so it matches with the same letter, the content of our costly witness. What is it that Stephen said? And we're going to look through chapter 7 here, but let me give some thoughts to help steer you through this chapter. Stephen is giving a response to these charges that are made against him. Basically, he's undermining the significance of the temple, speaking against God, and he's minimizing our interpretation of the law. He's speaking against Moses. Stephen's response is, in essence, you've rejected God's presence in the righteous one, Jesus, and you've also rejected God's righteousness because that's who Jesus is. He doesn't call him by name in the end of the chapter. He just calls him the righteous one. Stephen is saying, you, you're making so much of the temple, its, its structure and its religious system, that you've missed the God to whom it all points. So the battle's on. They're disputing with Stephen, and they don't like his answers. So now they're charging him with this blasphemy, speaking against God and against Moses. And Stephen's response is unique in that it is tailored for the specific crowd he's speaking to. These Jews who were clinging to their system of temple sacrifice and worship, having rejected Christ, they're going to hold on to their own efforts at self-righteousness. But the truth that Stephen shares is the gospel, although it's going to sound a little bit like a history lesson. He's using that specific history that they know so well to make his point about how it is we come into the presence of a holy God. How can sinners be received into the presence of God who is holy and without sin? Well, the Jews are claiming that through the temple and through the sacrifices, they can know God's presence. They can make peace with him by their animal sacrifices. And for a season, that's how God foreshadowed his ultimate sacrifice, his son, Jesus. But now that Jesus has come, Stephen is telling them Jesus is the new and better and permanent way to peace with God. You meet God not at a temple building, but in the person of Jesus by faith. And so here's on the outline what I think Stephen would want this gospel sermon to be known for. We can only meet God for forgiveness, for restored fellowship, for worship through Christ Jesus. Now, to get to that point, that you meet God through Jesus, Stephen's going to take us back through Israel's history. He's going to reason from that Old Testament timeline that God's presence was always with his people, but he was reminding them that God was not limited to where his presence was made known. 
And so listen as I highlight some of chapter 7 and how God was with his people, generally we would say, savingly, to point to or to accomplish salvation. How did God make his presence known and where was it? Because remember the charge is you're speaking against the temple, just like Jesus of Nazareth did about tearing it down and rebuilding it in three days. That was the charge. So now we have this discourse about God's presence and tabernacle and temple because Stephen is making a point about how it is sinners meet God. So Stephen stands and says, verse 2, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from that land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs and the patriarchs jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. Already we've heard of God's presence with Abraham in these foreign lands, the lands of the Chaldeans and Mesopotamia, God's presence with this people he was claiming as his own for this purpose of being with them so that they could worship him. But our story is quickly moved to the account in Egypt. That's a lot of years that have been covered. Jacob's 12 sons become those 12 tribes. They travel to Egypt after Joseph was sold, and eventually they find out that God's providence has led the slave Joseph to the throne of Egypt and maybe the known world. And God was with Joseph, verse 9 said, and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. So now God is also establishing his presence with his people through Joseph. The presence of God. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. You remember this account. Now the whole family comes and lives in Egypt while Joseph is ruling in Egypt. And the family grows. However, years would pass and Joseph would die. And the Bible tells us that a new Pharaoh came on the scene who forgot Joseph and the God of Joseph. And now he was afraid because Joseph's family, or more technically Jacob's extended family, was massive in number. And so they enslaved them for the protection of Egypt And that's that 400 years now of slavery until the story as Stephen picks it up in verse 20. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. 
So for the first 40 years of Moses' life, he's raised in the finest educational system of the world, and he's a master of that education. He is a master of words, which makes us stop and think for a minute, what did Moses mean when he said he wasn't a good speaker 40 years later? That's just not even true. God had equipped him to be a masterful speaker. Now Moses, recognizing these are his brothers that are suffering, intervenes. He kills the Egyptian that was abusing one of his Israelite brothers. And that causes Moses great fear. He flees to the wilderness. And yet, Stephen's not just telling a story, remember. He's saying God's presence was with his people. It was with Joseph, and now it's with Moses, both in the bulrushes floating in a basket as a baby or in the wilderness as a grown man who has God's hand on his life for a reason, for a purpose. We pick up reading, verse 30. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. And Moses, when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt." This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me, from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Stephen is driving home now. God was with Moses, but your fathers rejected him. Even though he met with God on a mountain to receive the living word of God, you rejected him. Verse 38, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness. There he is. There's the story of that Mount Sinai experience receiving the Ten Commandments. But what happened? Verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside and in their hearts turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the hand of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Now that's telling. Both in narrative, they quickly forgot about Moses who was up on the mountain receiving the very commands from God on how to be holy and to have no other gods before him. And yet they were down below clamoring for the gods that looked like the gods of Egypt. And the text says they were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, like those trying to build the Tower of Babel, it's the same old story. Humanity taking it upon themselves to figure out how we're going to be good, how it is I should worship, and what kind of God I think is acceptable to my mind. Stephen goes on to say, But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? God is asking a question. He's saying, wait a minute, didn't you do what I asked you to do, make an atoning sacrifice to picture 
a once-for-all sacrifice to come, a blood that would be shed to cover all sin. But what happened? Verse 43, you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. You, you turn to idolatry, and therefore you will face the judgment of God. Verse 44, Stephen again, now speaking to this council that already doesn't like his message, says, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. We know that as the tabernacle, that traveling tent that was kind of a forerunner to the permanent temple. They had that in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. The second half of the book of Exodus gives us all the details. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. So, God's presence with Abraham, Mesopotamia, land of the Chaldeans, God's presence with Joseph, even in Egypt, God's presence with Moses in Egypt and in the wilderness, at a burning bush, on a mountaintop, God's presence with his people in a wilderness, even just in a tent structure. And then more permanently in David and Solomon's day, God's presence in a stone building. And even when presence now seemed like it would be in a permanent place, we laid a foundation and built a massive structure. Surely now there is one place to find God. Stephen quotes Solomon, who built this house. Verse 48, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all of these things? Solomon and the prophets are asking this question, Can a structure made by finite man contain the infinite God who dwells everywhere. Even in a permanent building, we can't say this is the place where God is. Solomon, in his prayer of dedication, even asked this question that is, that is laden with foreshadowing. When he says, will the God of heaven dwell on earth with man? It's almost like, how can this be? And yet I don't know if Solomon knew, but his words were showing us, yes, God would meet with Israel in that stone building for this time, but God would dwell with us in a fuller way in a day to come in the person of Jesus Christ, and that would redefine everything we know, or at least fulfill everything we know about meeting God for forgiveness for restored fellowship, and for worship. Stephen continues. Now, in verse 51, everything is, it seemed like looking back, a few references to our fathers rejecting Moses or rejecting the law. But now Stephen gets pretty pointed in his condemnation, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Suddenly this story about meeting God has served its purpose because he's driving home the point, you don't have any desire to really meet with God. And frankly, you're ill-equipped in your unrighteous, unholy condition to encounter the holy God. All this talk of God's presence in all these different places was setting the table for us to understand that we can only meet God for forgiveness, restored fellowship, and worship through faith in Jesus Christ. Stephen's point is you, you've rejected the presence of God in his son, 
which is the fulfillment of all the things you're still hanging on to, all the types and pictures. You're insisting God will only work through this stone building, that's his place, but that wasn't even true in the Old Testament. God was wherever he chose to make himself known to his people. So you're the ones who have it wrong, Stephen says, about where it is we worship God. God's presence was most fully represented in Jesus. Yes, previously, sinners came to God for forgiveness to the temple, to the tabernacle, and they made their sacrifice there to atone or cover temporarily their sin. But when we read the book of Hebrews, as, as the commentary on the life and work of Jesus on earth, we find that Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. Sinners come to God to meet God for forgiveness. That restored fellowship, peace with God, and to worship him. But we don't come to a building or a place or a mountain or a region or a particular country. We come to God and meet him in Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus told the woman at the well in Samaria that an hour was coming and even now was here because it, he's talking about himself. That people would worship God not on this mountain or that mountain based on their religious tradition or preference, but they would worship God through the Son. Stephen has made his point about God's presence this whole charge about defaming the temple is invalid because you're saying, I have to meet God at this building. That's where God's presence is. Stephen's saying the veil's been torn in two. The temple has served its purpose to point us to a greater meeting place with God, Jesus himself. But there's another aspect of the content of Stephen's witness that may be challenging for us to hear this morning. There comes a point in our sharing of truth that we must speak of the reality and the guilt of sin. We can, we can talk to people about Jesus and his salvation and his grace, but it, it's a little deflated if we haven't explained to them the reality of the ruin of sin. So Stephen has made his case well about the presence of God, where it is, and how we meet with God. But when he says in verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. He is now indicting them. He is saying, you know what? You are unfit to meet the Holy God. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, which is bad, but worse, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You, who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. When we hear those words, we recognize that this life of witness that we've been called to is not just happy-go-lucky, prosperity-type gospel witness where, oh, God's been really good to me. You should get to know him. There's truth there, isn't there? Can't we say God has been good to us? Ultimately and specifically in the giving of his son. And we do want them to get to know this God. But if we're not careful, we're so, what's the word, positive or or just big on the love of God, that they, they have no compelling reason to need that. It might just be auxiliary, because life's pretty good for them. We have to get to, you stiff-necked neighbor, you co-worker with uncircumcised heart. Now, we might not use those words, right? Because both of those words are Big Old Testament words. This is about the worst thing you can say. When they made the golden calf and worshipped it, 
and God sent Moses down and he rebukes them, guess what word he chose? You're stiff-necked. And the word the prophets loved was this uncircumcised heart. On the outside, you look great, but on the inside, it is cold and dead and without feeling. So these are harsh words that, that mean something to the Jewish audience. We don't have to use them. What we do need to communicate is the desperate need to be rescued because we are unfit. We are not righteous, and only righteous people will fellowship with God in heaven. So we need to speak boldly and clearly and make it known that we all are self-righteous idolaters who have rejected God's truth. This rounds out Stephen's message in just two points. The presence of God, what are we talking about? We're talking about the new temple, Jesus, where we come by faith and there we meet God. But we can't do that. As the psalmist said, who can ascend the holy hill? Who can, who can enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise? Who can make a sacrifice with clean hands? None of us can. Because we're self-righteous idolaters that have rejected God's truth. So we need Jesus Christ. Stephen highlights their rejection. They resisted the Holy Spirit. They worshiped a golden calf. They rejected the law. They killed the prophets. And now the descendants of those fathers, you have murdered the righteous one that Moses said would come. In short, this whole story goes like this. The council says, we don't like what you're saying. You're guilty of blasphemy. And Stephen answers with, oh, there is guilt here. There is guilt of blasphemy. There is guilt of rejecting Moses. There is guilt of speaking against God and his prophets. There is guilt of forsaking the law. There is guilt in misunderstanding the temple. There is guilt in resisting the spirit of God. There is guilt in murdering the Messiah. There is guilt here, but it is not mine. It is yours. And the text erupts. When they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. We all have some idea what this is like. You know what it is to be so angry that you, you, everything tightens up and you might even grit your teeth together like, oh, I'm so mad. That's what's happening here. But, but there is no limitation. Like you might limit that because you know, okay, I, I'm... I'm not under control. That is not the temperance the spirit works. That is clearly my fleshly reaction. And you rein it in. But there is no reining it in here. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He gazes into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And now... Rage goes to a level that we can only describe as murderous. Which is the end of hate and rage. Jesus taught us that. But unbridled anger that just, there, there's only one thing left to do because we can't hate him enough with our words, but we can with our actions. And they throw him over the edge of the city, down into the valley and stone him with stones. And Stephen has this surrender to the sweet will of his father and reflects the character of Christ in that prayer that his gospel witness of showing and telling would bear fruit in the lives of even these who took his life. It is not unloving or judgmental or intolerant for us to communicate the desperate ruin of sin to unbelievers. When we tell people that they are sinners, it is so that they will turn in faith to the gift of God, the righteousness of Christ, theirs for the taking by faith. Believe that Jesus' record of righteousness is good enough for you and that you can't come up with that record of righteousness. That's what we want them to know. It's just that sharing that good news only makes sense on the backdrop of the bad news. The love of God is sweet sounding, 
but it resounds when it's splashed on the backdrop of God's judgment on sin and sinners. This is the content of the message. Stephen speaks wisely, full of wisdom and of the Spirit, to take the gospel of how sinners meet God and explaining it perfectly in the context of the audience that he stood before. Which reminds us that when Jesus in John 3 talked to Nicodemus, it was the same truth but packaged in these words. And in the next chapter, chapter 4, when talking to a, a foreigner, a Samaritan woman in her desperate need, he packaged the same hope of the gospel in different words. We take this truth of gospel, good news, that God's mercy to us is salvific through Jesus, and we, we tailor that into the words of our conversation with different neighbors and coworkers and family. It's not a different gospel. It's the same gospel in different conversations and contexts. And we should get good at this. We will, if we, like Stephen, are full of the character of God that seeks out the lost to show them salvation. Don't miss the consequences of our costly witness. Verse 9, they disputed with Stephen. Let's call that argument. Verses 11 through 13, they had to drum up false witnesses. This is accusation. You've, you've encountered this in your witness. First, an argument. Well, I don't believe that. I think it's this. And then when you show them the fallacy of their thinking, what do they do? Well, well, you people are hypocrites. They default now to accusation because the disputing isn't going to work. It's truth. It's God's truth. But the accusation can work. And when that doesn't work, we see in verse 54 of chapter 7, they were enraged. So now argument moves to accusation, which moves to just downright anger. It's not even suggestion. It's now just, I, I hate that. And so even today, if not directed at you individually, we see how moral rightness produces rage in people. We hate you. Why? What have we done? Because we think you hate us. Well, wait, who's the hater here? But it's the natural progression against truth, and any of those who speak it. Argument, accusation, anger, and when none of that works to silence this witness, then we have the violence, the death, and we'll call that attack. And for, for the, the American citizen, the American Christian, we, we get the anger a little bit, and, and maybe the accusation, I know, the church is full of hypocrites, uh, and maybe even some of the rage, they hate what we stand for, but very few of us, and, and I'm not saying it's everyone, someone here may have felt personal anger and hatred toward you. You might have unbelieving family, for example, that, that gets so mad because you won't tolerate something at the family reunion or you spoke against it. They hate the way you're raising your kids. They think you're abusing them, and, and it, it's, there's animosity there. But very few of us probably have a good grasp on the threat of real harm coming to us. You know, maybe, maybe that's on the horizon. Maybe, maybe revival in America takes us back to our founding roots and we fend off the nonsense and the downright darkness of the ideology of our day. But the reality is, whether it be in the future of our nation, it is the future it is the reality of so many nations around the world that Christians, in exactly the same way, which seems so foreign to us, are treated physically in ways that cause great harm and even death. You, you really need to follow, at least in part, just to be obedient to Colossians 2, to pray for believers that are in chains, you should follow the persecuted church in some way. Voice of the Martyrs is a helpful tool. Surely imperfect, I, I can't, I guess, speak to everything they've ever published, but it has helped me enormously 
to recognize that stories like this, that the gospel will be so hated that men will give their lives in the pursuit of destroying the Christians that deliver the message. That's the reality of the world where we're sending missionaries. That's the reality of the world where your son or daughter may want to go. And you're going to have to grapple with faith to let them go. Because the kingdom of God is advancing. The witness is working. The church is growing. The gates of hell are being pushed over. They can't withstand this assault. And yet, all of that may come at a cost. And so we should not have the expectation of spending years and years in ministry ease, proclaiming the gospel and thinking people will be drawn to our country club of of God takes care of everything and life is good. God does take care of everything and he promises that he will work all of our lives for good. But that is not in contrast with our message today that you are called to show and tell the gospel of Jesus Christ even when consequences loom large. For some of you, it may be as simple as battling bad ideas. Things like, well, if I offend them, then they won't listen to me anymore. But I would ask you, why do you want them to listen to you? It's so you can tell them that they are sinners. Bad news. But Jesus came to seek and to save sinners. That's the good news. What good is it if they listen to you about other things and you never speak the truth of the gospel? We may be more fearful of taking a stand and giving the answer than we think we are. Our pride may be more of a hurdle than we realize. We don't want people to think that we are weird, hateful, or out of touch. I think it's the number one limitation to our witness. I don't think we're afraid of persecution, sticks and stones and burning our building down or taking our lives. I think we're afraid we'll look weird. And so we don't speak up. May God help us. Because we're not being true to what we are, witnesses. So know the reality of consequence the consequences of your witness. What might happen to you if you speak for Christ? That's a valid consequence to consider. And what might happen to sinners if you don't? That too is a valid consequence. May God help us to show and tell the truth of the gospel even when consequences loom large. Heavenly Father, strengthen us in our love for you, strengthen us in our confidence in your truth, in your gospel, strengthen our dependence on your promises, and strengthen the power of our witness for the glory of your son Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.